everyone, thank you for joining me. You're listening to Frequency Bay, and I am your host, Madam Butterfly. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode. So on today's episode, uh, I'll be talking a bit about, or actually going over a few articles, rather, in relationship to, or information. Information. I'll be going over information that is associated with the topic, um... Uh, associated with the topic of uh, food sensitivity and um, trauma. I thought this is just a really good um, push point today to discuss. Um, this is a topic I wanted to, to discuss the last time, but I didn't get the chance to because I ran out of time. But um, yeah, right now is uh, a better time than ever. So... I'm going to start off with um, an interview, and then from there, I've got about three different articles that I wanted to share, and um, we'll end off with that, and that'll be our episode for today. So thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Frequency Bay. Um, Definitely don't forget to subscribe if you like my content. I am always, you know, on the lookout for new folks to give me a listen um i think that the topic of trauma is one that is very uh i don't know overrated or underrated not uh underrated and uh definitely deserves less stigma and that'll be one of the articles that i'll be reading about today um mental health and a lot of the stigma that's associated with it and uh it's intersection with one other thing uh but let's go ahead and get into this interview um We'll look at trauma-informed ways to interact with clients. Lori Markoff will serve as counselor for the My bad, y'all. That's the, um, I think, uh, I don't know what that is, but I'm, like, in the basement, um, doing this at the moment.
looking for something that's not too long. People with eating disorders in general don't want eating disorders. disorders in general don't want eating disorders. We like to think like, oh, that would never happen. Any one of us could develop an eating disorder. We're no different. I'm Ashley McCann, and I'm a therapist in Jacksonville, Florida. I work with an eating disorder center and in private practice. Individuals with anorexia, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, all of these individuals with eating disorders likely experience a considerable amount of preoccupation with food. What I'm going to eat, what I'm not going to eat, when and where. It might be feeling that I don't belong or I don't fit unless my body looks a certain way. But it's not that that is really what the person is looking for. What the person is looking for is a sense of belonging, of connection, of love, feeling worthy or valuable, of feeling safe or secure. so many. They're about vanity, that they're simply about food, that people should just be able to stop. That people are different than us. ARFID is an acronym that stands for Avoid and Restrict food intake disorder. Previously known as selective eating disorder, this was introduced in 2013 with the DSM-5. ARFID is a diagnosis uh, in which we see people significantly restricting what foods they eat, the number of foods they eat, how much food they eat. But the difference between picky eating and someone with ARFID is that that anxiety, it leaves people feeling powerless. While someone who is a picky eater might not like to eat certain things, they won't be shut down by the idea of doing it. ARFID is similar to most eating disorders in that there is this intense underlying anxiety. And the way in which it's different is that it's not restrictive to meet the end of um, a body image disturbance or dysmorphia. There's no drive for thinness. When we have an experience of trauma, again, we might feel out of control, powerless and helpless. So trauma can really prime us to develop all kinds of maladaptive patterns. And eating disorders really can operate in the same way. People can use them to numb, to get out of a feeling, or 
for some it's to create a different feeling state, but for all of them, you know, that, that common thread is that underlying anxiety or pain or discomfort, that suffering that they're trying to alleviate. The longer someone has had an eating disorder, the more deeply ingrained those patterns and behaviors are, the more treatment they might need. The paths to recovery might vary. Where there's a clear and present trauma, we might be looking initially at doing trauma therapy and then food reintroduction. And when it's sensory, we might go right at food exposure. Whenever I'm working with any kind of eating disorder, I'm working as well with a doctor and a dietitian. So together, we're looking at labs and making recommendations based on what is needed for balance. That was a pretty good opener. Um, so from there, I want to dive right into the first article, which, uh, if I can uh, pull it up now. And we're looking at an article from Psychology Today, Five Ways to Be Happy When You're Hurting. to the question, what's the point of getting upset? So this particular article was put together by a woman by the name of Leslie, uh, Leslie Baker Phillips, PhD, and she's, I think, part of a group called Making Change, and it was posted on the 10th of January, 2022, that was about 10 days ago, a little over 10 days ago.
some key points in this article. Uh, you cannot always, you cannot will away your pain or fully decide, uh, decide yourself into not feeling it. Uh, pushing away your pain can double your problems. Uh, taking Taking reprise from your pain can help you become more resilient and nurturing, compassionate self-awareness can help you develop a sense of well-being even when you are feeling hurt. Alright, so we're going to start at the top. Make it drop. No, I'm kidding. Um, it starts off, what's the point of getting upset? This is a question I frequently hear within the walls of my therapy office. It's a question. It's a reasonable question. After, after all, if you want to be happy, counting your blessings seems like a better idea than crying in pain. Whether it be sadness, hurt, anger, or any other uh, distressing emotion, but when it comes to problems bigger than monetary setbacks, the human psyche cannot be easily distracted or deceived. Um, there is certainly a price for trying to avoid or minimize emotional pain. Just ask any parent who has distracted their child when they were afraid of uh, getting a COVID shot. Seemingly people who, who face tragedy frequently use uh, glorious humor to find temporary reprise from their distress and looking for positive or seeking and looking for positive or seeking out full, seeking out feel good activities can indeed be helpful in climbing out of unhappiness, depression, or anxiety. But constantly being avoidant can cause problems. The under, to understand this better, consider the, these five steps of cultivating happiness, uh, all of which include uh, attaining, attending to your distress. Acknowledge your emotional pain. It cannot be willed away. Just as you can force a, a sodic look on your face when punched in the gut, you can make yourself appear uh, unfazed by, emotional, by an emotional blow, but superficial appearances as well as efforts to distract do not change the fact that you feel pain. Once you acknowledge your unhappiness, the purpose of the the purpose of feeling it becomes clear. To not feel it is to deny reality. But while you might feel fool others, you can never fully deceive yourself. Um, number two, stop pushing your pain away and accept it. It's, it's understandable that you don't want to be upset, but denying it will prevent you from seeing them, seeing the thorn in your heart. You will have a sense that Something is wrong, but you won't understand what you are feeling. I often see this in therapy when patients have told me in earnest that they don't know why they are so depressed about their perfect life. Inevitably, they are being honest with themselves, such as talking around the fact that their spouse is emotionally distant or that they are missing some other essentialness for a happy life. For a happy life. 
As a result, they have they have at least doubled their problems. They are sad or hurt or whatever about something in their life, but they don't let themselves know that. That's interesting. They don't let themselves know that. Wow. So in addition, they are confused by their unhappiness. Number three, get to know what is upsetting you because you can only heal what you can. Wow. Number three is really good. Get to know what's upsetting you because you can only heal what you can see, what you can truly see. That's, that's really good. The less you know about your unhappiness, the less you will be able to heal. This means that becoming self-aware is extremely important. So attend to what you see in your, so attend to what you sense in your body. Take time to consider your thoughts. Sit with your feelings, observe your actions, and try to understand what these experiences tell you about your response as you do. That's really good. Number four, uh, nurture empathy and compassion for yourself. Oh, goodness. Uh, Number four is pretty big. Nurture empathy and compassion for yourself. So I feel like that is when self-care really takes a center stage um, and becomes extremely important as you know to as you get to know yourself it is essential that you do it from an understanding and caring perspective looking upon yourself the way you might do with a good friend or even a child this way of reflecting of relating to yourself rather is it's called compassionate self-awareness with compassionate self-awareness you can truly Acknowledge your pain and it can have a desire to ease it. This might mean doing things to lessen your hurt, such as making efforts to work through misunderstandings with a sibling or in, or it might sit mean accepting that you cannot change a difficult situation and allowing yourself to feel the pain. For example, as you grieve over a loved one dying, you might be might share bittersweet memories with others. Uh, number five. Something sometimes it is important to take a a reprise from facing your hurt. As important as it is to acknowledge, empathize with, and have compassion for your pain, sometimes these steps can be overwhelming and exhausting. They can lead to feeling stuck and under the weight of negative thoughts and and painful emotions so pausing to calm and comfort yourself pausing to calm and comfort yourself can give can often help give you the resilience to rebound from a rumoring spiral downward for in for instance rather than continuing to churn and vent about how your uh survivor or about how your supervisor uh, disrespects you enjoy an evening with friends might give you enough distance to figure out how to effectively address the problem these are all really really good um, when you are hurting it's important to keep in mind that cultivating happiness does not mean denying your reality in fact to be deeply truly happy You must accept and love the person you are, painful feelings and all, by approaching yourself with compassionate self-awareness. 
you will find that a sense of well-being and the happiness you seek are within your reach. Wow, this is really well written. Oh, deep breaths. I hope everyone enjoyed that first article. It's definitely packed with a lot of really good information. <laughs> Excuse me. And I'm also hoping that everybody's enjoying their weekend as well. Um, Saturday and Sunday, for me personally, have been pretty relaxing, and I appreciate that. Um, and it was crazy because um, yesterday, well, actually yesterday and today, it finally hit me that like a lot of the prayers that I've been praying have been my ancestors and my spirit guides have come to fruition and it's it, it's crazy because um i don't know maybe i don't spend enough time um paying attention to gratitude <laughs> yeah maybe i need to spend more time in a space of gratitude when it comes to my ancestors and spirit guides because I'm almost positive about four or five of the things that I've been praying for recently have completely and totally manifested and have actualized very beautifully um, into my life. And I'm extremely grateful for those things. Um, and um, like it shook me when I realized it this morning. I was like sitting in bed and thinking to myself like, Fuck. <laughs> I got exactly what I wanted. Because I'm so used to, I guess, not not getting what I wanted or what I want, but just like, I don't know, maybe I don't spend it, maybe the whole self-awareness thing is something that I should work on. Um, but that's for a different day. You guys don't want to hear me rant about my my BS, so I'll keep it short.
So I'm going to get to the second article here. I don't know what the heck it's called. And we'll go from there. Definitely hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I'm excited for next week. I don't know about y'all, but like, I've got so much work to do and so much stuff to look forward to. I'm pretty excited. I can't, I can't lie. Um, yeah, I can't lie. Uh, I hope that everybody is, uh, as excited for the next week and for the rest of the month as I am. And it's, what's even crazier is the fact that like, we are into the thick of this month. Like, it's, it's here. (laughs) And it's 2022, you guys, and we've got, like, what, 11 more months to go? Until 2023? Um, I personally, I don't know, I stay excited all the time, just in general. Like, it's kind of just, like, my thing. Um, I, I, I stay excited about life in general on like a regular basis just like (laughs) just because I know that um life is magic and life has always been magic for me growing up personally um I don't really know how to explain it other than the fact that I feel really blessed to be a star child I feel really blessed to be an empath I feel really blessed to be a child of uh divine deities and ancestors i feel really blessed to be a child of saturn and um yeah uh i definitely stay in a a space of gratitude in relationship to all of that and uh yeah it doesn't get much better (laughs) In all honesty, and going into 2022, the only thing that I want to do is amplify that um, and amplify as much as I can for others who, you know, have my back as well. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's 2022, and it's absolute, complete, and utter go time, folks. I'm gonna try a different. Yeah, I'm gonna try something a bit different. I'll be right back.
Okay, I'm back. So, as per usual, I'm getting problems from my laptop. So, I think I can make this a scenic route. If you're listening, your patience is absolutely appreciated. So let's talk a little bit about why I decided to go with um, trauma and its relationship to food sensitivity. Um, food, in my opinion, is such a psychological thing and weight and its relationship to weight is such a psychological thing and I really feel like Science and medicine has yet to really dive into that conversation in a way that, like, genuinely makes any kind of shockwave. Um, I've seen a lot of different conversations in relationship to 
the psychology associated with it. So with food and with trauma and things of that nature and weight and things like that. But I um, I feel like if the conversations were, were more genuine, then we could really get to the root of a lot of fat phobia. I'm not even sure if we can really bring up the conversation about fat phobia before we talk about um, psychology, weight, uh, therapy, um, and just things like that, um, personally. And we're like, they're not even touching or getting into um, conversations like. Uh, eating disorders it's all jumbled up in there and in my opinion like I just think that things like conversations like that are at the bedrock of of um what has the potential to really shape western ideology and My laptop is moving painfully slow. I'm not a fan of this. And if you haven't heard about the the tiny house warriors warriors who were found not guilty at 
um, Mouty Point Finger at a who who were found not guilty after a two year damn battle with the court system. It's a really good article. You should definitely take the time and check it out. So the next article that I want to get into is stigmatizing language in mental health and addiction. How? And this is another article from Psychology Today. By Christian Fuller. Uh, and I think she's with a program called Happiness is a State of Mind. And it says, how words can affect someone's mental health and be a barrier to treatment. You know, for me, for a really long time, um, there was a barrier to treatment for me. Um, when it comes to uh, getting help because of the stigma that my family, um, like they, they were into me getting, uh, you know, mental health, health, mental health help growing up, but they had zero understanding of what type, who to take me to, what to tell them. And how to go about my treatment uh, when I was growing up. And I think that that spoke really deeply to just the fact that they just didn't get help. And they knew there was a situation, there was a problem. But, uh, you know, with narcissistic parents, like, you can never tell them shit. So, <laughs> the problem was never them. <laughs> this is basically what I'm saying. And um, so, that left pretty much left the ball in my court um for those of you who don't know i or are new here uh i have ptsd or actually not ptsd i have complex ptsd uh high functioning depression and high functioning um high functioning anxiety excuse me um adhd add and um Excuse me, I'm neurodivergent and the list does go on. Um, but enough about me, let's get into this article. It says uh, some key points. When it comes to language, the brain produces a response to words, which is a process known as associative, uh, associative activation. Interesting. Uh, stigmatizing language is one of the many barriers seeking to seeking treatment for a substance use or mental health disorder. An individual's health is only one aspect of, aspect of who they are and does not define them. Hallelujah. Okay, so let's get started. Language matters, especially when it comes to when it comes time to men, for mental health and addiction treatment. Fortunately, how we view mental health and addiction has improved dramatically over the past few decades and even in recent years, but we still have a long way to go. For example, many generations have grown up in a society where stigmatizing words such as psycho, loony, and crazy were acceptable. Uh, words to describe an individual, uh, the Words to describe an individual. Those words are no longer acceptable in current times, but are still 
used across many platforms, including social media and many in everyday language. Um, I feel in some respects that this is uh, laying a little light on the load. And what I mean by that is um, you still see people getting made fun of for emotional breakdowns in public. You still see people having psychotic breaks in public. And you still see people going viral for emotional breakdowns and things of that nature and being made fun of on a really wide scale when they're in a position where they're trying to get help. Um, so I would say that something like this or statements like that would be like less than 50% true, personally, from what I've seen. Um, and, you know, based on your gender, based on your color, is whether or not you'll be accepted as someone who's actually hurting. Um, because, um, in a lot of different communities, it's still not accepted to be someone who gets treatment, uh, as someone who, you know, goes to therapy and sits in front of a therapist and talks out your problems or something like that. Um, so, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, this one looks really good. I'm going to find another article. But anyway, how the brain processes language. When it comes to language, our brain processes a response to words, a process known as uh, associative activation. When we see our heart, see or hear a word, our brain forms an idea followed by an emotion, an emotion which often uh, produces an action or reaction. Language produces a cascade of activity in our brain that happens quickly with no vital conscious control. Um, our language produces a cascade of activity in our brain that happens quickly with no conscious uh, control with no vital conscious control it produces a series of or a pattern of collect cognitive emotional and physical responses we respond to words without even realizing it as a result stigmatization stigmatizing language has an immediate uh, visceral the visceral visceral uh, adverse reaction when we have hear words like crazy, addict, or alcoholic, we immediately label the individual as bad simply because of the, stigmati the stigmatizing language that our brain processes into a, a visceral negative emotion. Uh, defining stigma. Stigmatizing language is one of the many barriers to seeking treatment for a... Uh, for a substance use or mental health disorder as many individuals do not want to be labeled stigma is often defined as the negative view and attitude toward people or ideas based on uh 
distinguishing characteristics in terms of mental health and addiction stigma can uh, lead to poor health outcomes as as well as individuals who face stigma are less likely to seek treatment and are more likely to struggle with self-esteem issues ah this is this is giving me the hot flashes it's giving me the hot flashes um Stigmatizing language in mental health, uh, in the mental health and addiction realm is everywhere. Social media and the general public, to books, television, and healthcare providers, how we use our words can make a huge difference. In a perspective published in uh, Neuropsych. Neuropsychomorphology, uh, pretty sure I butchered that word, but leaders from the National Institute of Health access how, act, uh, just how using appropriate language to describe mental health illness and addiction can help to reduce stigma and improve how people use, see, how people with this condition are treated in healthcare settings and throughout society. Adopting person-centered language in individuals' uh, mental health is only one aspect of who they are, as their mental health does, and as their mental health does not define them. And using stigmatizing language to describe the person can be harmful. For example, instead of calling someone mentally ill, a respectful person-first way of phrasing it is to uh, say a person living with a mental health condition. Words like addict, alcoholic, and abuser put a strong emphasis on the person rather than the, the disorder. Uh, reframing these terms into a more appropriate language so it does not label the person is the key to dismantling these words, destigmatizing these words. I'm sorry. For example, language such as individuals with a health, mental health disorder or the individual with a substance a substance use disorder is a more appropriate language that puts the person first and stays away from the stigmatizing words. Describing someone as schizophrenic or psychotic immediately uses the mental health disorder to define the person. When instead, mental health is only one aspect of the of the whole person. A more appropriate, centered person person centered language would be someone living with schizophrenia or someone living with psychosis. Therefore, the person is emphasized first rather than the disorder. The public often views living with a mental health disorder as a character flaw. When mental health disorders are brain disorders and should be uh, treated like any other medical disorder, changing the, the, the verbiage can change how the, the public views mental health and addiction. Think before you speak. Appropriate language in the mental health world uh, died by suicide instead of committed suicide, survived a suicide instead of successful or failed attempt, uh, used or misused instead of abuse.
treatment instead of getting clean, uh, alcohol use disorder instead of alcoholic, uh, substance abuse abuse, substance use abuse instead of addiction, uh, addiction free instead of sober, individual use alcohol use uh, disorder instead of alcoholic, individual with substance disorder instead of junkie or addict. And those are just a few examples. last um, we're gonna get into our last article and that'll be it for this episode I think what we might do is we might end with a lecture in relationships ways to
Actually, I think I'm just going to go ahead and get on to the lecture. Um, yeah, let's get into this and then uh, that'll be it for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new. Um, and yeah, I'll be wrapping. In this video, we're going to discuss food sensitivities and why they might be the root cause of your brain fog and depression, the difference between food sensitivities, food intolerances, and food allergies, and why it matters, what causes them, but more importantly, how to get your body, brain, and life back. This is a mini masterclass, so grab a coffee and let's dive in. Work harder, run faster, think smarter. The hustle and die culture is killing us. Millions are stressed and depressed. I was one of them. I went on a 90-day mission to buy a hack my way back to health. The result? My best-selling book, Unstoppable, daily. It's your turn. Thousands buy a hack their way out of depression, fatigue, and stress into optimal health. Before we begin, I want to let you know that we're giving away a free digital gut health report. If activities is get back a long list of foods that they should avoid. Instead of feeling like they're getting answers, they're left saying, what the f*** should I eat? And if you've been watching a lot of videos on this topic, you most likely notice that they're contradictory in nature. They either advocate for a food sensitivity test or tell you to avoid it. There's also confusion around what a food sensitivity is versus a food allergy and a food intolerance. It rarely is it broken down for you in simple terms to help you understand how food sensitivities can mimic, can even cause depression and trigger brain fog, and what you should do about it. So in this video, I'm going to cut through the BS to make it easy for you. But first, let me say, I understand where you're coming from. I've struggled with food sensitivities. They're debilitating. You'll go to sit down at your desk and you'll have trouble focusing on your computer due to brain fog. Reading a book is generally out of the question. And you may even notice, like in my case, your speech slows down because you're desperately trying to construct cohesive sentences, but the words and the ideas just aren't coming quickly enough. Thankfully, there's relief and there's also reasons as to why those symptoms occur. But first of all, we need to take a different approach. So let's begin this conversation by discussing the differences between a food allergy, food intolerance, and a food sensitivity. The first and the most serious is a food allergy. This occurs when the body forms an immune response to food ingredients and creates an antibody called immunoglobulin E or IgE, which is easier to pronounce. IgE reacts against the allergen causing your body to release chemicals that cause symptoms such as itching, sneezing, congestion, asthma, coughing, and in severe cases, anaphylaxis, which is of course life-threatening. Two, food intolerance. A food intolerance is where you lack the specific enzymes needed to break down and absorb specific ingredients. Common food intolerances are sugar, dairy, and gluten, and they're typically pretty easy to identify. Three, food sensitivity. An individual has an adverse physical response to a certain food or ingredient. This also involves an inappropriate immune response. The symptoms may only be digestive, but can lead to fatigue, brain fog, 
due to inflammation which hinders energy production in neurons, making it hard for them to communicate. Hence, the brain slows down and it's more easily fatigued. Respiratory issues such as asthma, headaches and migraines, eczema, acne, psoriasis, joint aches and pains, general inflammation, depression, anxiety, and even sadness. Admittedly, they're easy to get confused because the symptoms overlap. Although it's far easier to identify and rule out an allergy and an intolerance versus a food sensitivity. Dr. Alessio Fasano, director of the Center for Celiac Research and Treatment at Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital says, food sensitivity is simply a sign your digestive system is changing. Well, our data also backs this up. In surveying over 50,000 people and collecting 1.5 million pieces of data, which forms the basis for your free online gut health report, we found out that people who were also suffering depression, anxiety, loss of drive and focus, were also far more likely to exhibit the following gut health related symptoms, including alternating constipation, diarrhea, bloating, changes in metabolism, increased rates of obesity, being more prone to an unhealthy diet, high sugar and carb cravings, which feed the bad bacteria, they also have trouble sleeping. They never wake up feeling refreshed and good to go. So how does this happen? Well, for example, after a three-month trip that I did around the US, my own gut bacteria became imbalanced. I exhibited all of the symptoms. I also started developing food sensitivities that I hadn't previously had before, caffeine being one of them. It literally kneecapped my cognition. I couldn't focus. I couldn't get my work done. And I was thinking about a change in careers, which I couldn't do because I really couldn't work properly at the time. I could only do a couple of hours of solid work in the morning before I was a complete write-off by the afternoon. Worse yet, a course of antibiotics compounded these problems even further by killing off good and bad gut bacteria that are essential for overall well-being as well as mental health. As I discuss in my new book, Mind Control, everything is inexplicably linked back to our gut health. Our gut communicates to our brain via the vagus nerve. With over 100 million nerve cells that line our intestinal walls, it's no wonder that when we disrupt the bacteria in this region with antibiotics, poor diet, painkillers and a toxic environment, it creates this neuropsychiatric effect, influencing our mood and mental health, which is why addressing not just food sensitivities, but gut health becomes an urgent part of your plan, especially if you're exhibiting any of the symptoms that we've just run through. Disruptions to the gut microbiome could be related to an increase in food sensitivities, depression, and anxiety. And here are the top seven triggers. One, increased levels of stress. Two, depression, which could be a cause of a gut imbalance, thereby leading to sensitivities or vice versa. Studies have shown people with depression have altered gut bacteria. Three, international travel, an introduction of an unwanted strain or pathogen. Four, a course of antibiotics that kills off good bacteria, as well as bad, resulting in a lack of microbial diversity and a presence of pathogens of which sugars and carbs feed these. Keep an eye out for my video dedicated to antibiotics coming out. Five, environmental triggers such as toxins. Six, sleep loss. 
This is fascinating. Studies show that adults who had standard sleeping patterns then were exposed to sleep disruption for two days. Only sleeping for 4.5 hours caused their gut microbiome to become dysbiotic or impaired. Seven, some suggest a major factor is a natural weakening of our intestinal lining that leads to tiny leaks thereby leading to inflammation. Food sensitivities, food intolerances, and food allergies are easily confused, but food sensitivities are somewhat more insidious because they're harder to diagnose because they're a symptom of an underlying problem. You can remove the trigger foods, but that doesn't mean you've addressed the underlying cause, which could be an imbalanced gut. Which leads me to this question. Are food sensitivity tests accurate? And should you take one? As you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the accuracy of food sensitivity tests, such as what causes a specific response to specific foods. Among medical researchers, limited research, vague terminology with conflicting definitions of allergies versus intolerance versus sensitivities, gaps in research, and arguably the inherent discomfort of the unknown all play a role in this. Some tests measure antibodies in the blood, such as the IgG tests, and since IgG is a memory antibody, it only confirms exposure to a food, not necessarily a reaction to it. You may be fascinated to learn that an IgG test is also administered when detecting viral infections, such as the COVID-19 antibody test, which indicates if the person has already had the virus. Other tests are centered on studying white blood cells as an indicator of an inflammatory response, including the Alcat test and the enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA. So should you take a food sensitivity test? I've taken one in the past, and I've even interviewed the founder of Everly Well about their food sensitivity. And while it did help me to uncover two trigger foods, this despite all of the evidence that I just presented to you, I still remain skeptical. The problem, first of all, is I don't know if it was a lucky coincidence, knowing what I now know, but secondly, simply removing those foods don't address the underlying problem. A gut imbalance that could also be preventing you from absorbing nutrients that are vital for your healthy brain function, such as magnesium, vitamin D, and B6 in which deficiencies of any of these can cause depression as well as anxiety. Poor gut health can also impact the production of key neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, which is of course produced in the gut. After writing my new book, Mind Control, in which we interviewed top gut health experts from various industries, I now believe a gut health test to be far more appropriate in which you send a small sample than await your lab results. Why? As discussed, the gut has been implicated in food sensitivities by taking a test and looking at your lab results to identify specific strains of bacteria that you're lacking in and which ones you need to focus on. You can develop a more detailed plan moving forward and you can take the guesswork out of the equation. I give my recommendation for the specific test in the free gut health report, so check out the link below. This will help you a lot. My own gut health test that indicated that I was low in a strain called bacteroids, which had been implicated in depression. I was suffering severe depression at the time. It was one of many factors. I'm not saying it was the only factor, 
It was one of many that you need to also rule out. By taking the test, it suddenly became easy for me to target precisely which probiotics I needed and foods to consume, helping to speed up my recovery. With all of this in mind, how do you A, identify food sensitivity, then B, start to heal your gut microbiome to help alleviate brain fog, depression, anxiety, and all of the other symptoms that come along with a sensitivity. Well, first you must realize that if you originally thought your depression or anxiety was a result of negative thinking alone, but instead it's potentially a symptom of a gut imbalance, understand that in this instance, it doesn't matter how much self-help work you do, it won't last. Trust me, I've tried it. In fact, if your gut is imbalanced, and you're having trouble absorbing key nutrients for good brain health, your symptoms will unfortunately get worse over time if you don't start with a foundation, your gut health. But what happens if you don't address your gut health issues and alter your diet? You may experience even more symptoms such as hormonal changes, more negative behavioral changes. If these are sustained for a lengthy period of time, you're literally creating negative neural pathways that will be exhaustively harder to reprogram in the future. This also means that if you're still experiencing these symptoms, self-help, emotional control, become even harder because your brain isn't in a healthy functioning state due to malabsorption and inflammation. You may feel better momentarily when you do those exercises, but it's not gonna last. Hence your emotions and your energy levels they're going to be like a roller coaster ride and you're most likely dying to get off. You'll also go ahead and remove certain trigger foods, but other food sensitivities may present themselves over time if you don't reset your gut. To help, here are seven steps that you can take to kick off your own journey. Steps that I've gone through myself. One, you can take our free online quiz to get your free digital gut health report. More on this shortly. Two, keep a food journal and identify possible trigger foods and do an elimination diet. Do one food at a time so you can precisely pinpoint which foods are causing you the most harm right now. Three, look at the past 72 hours. If you suddenly have an onset of symptoms, ask yourself, what did I eat in the past 72 hours that's out of the norm for your typical diet? And note, how do you feel? energetically as well as emotionally. Four, take a gut health test to identify specific strains of bacteria you're lacking. Five, once you understand the lab work, reintroduce the healthy strains immediately, ideally through a recommended blend of probiotics after taking a test or consuming fermented foods that provide a nourishing environment for your good bacteria to thrive. Foods such as kefir, yogurt, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi, tempeh, and miso are all examples of fermented foods, but you do need to be aware just because they are fermented, it doesn't mean they contain live strains, which is essential to your healing. Six, start cleaning up your diet by significantly reducing sugars and carbs. Seven, daily meditation to reduce stress. Meditation hypnosis has been shown to help people with IBS symptoms. By introducing healthy strains of bacteria, people can reduce symptoms of depression. This can also be done by taking mood-enhancing strains of probiotics, such as PS128 or PS23. You'll notice I didn't pronounce them. They're too damn hard. <laughs> or you can take a targeted probiotic blend 
containing these, but see your free gut health report for my recommendations on which one to take. Clinical studies have shown that taking probiotics regularly has been shown to reduce depression and especially social anxiety. Once a food sensitivity has been identified, you've removed it from your diet and you're healing your gut, you should be able to reintroduce those foods at a later stage, but you need to do it gradually and keep a diary of how you're feeling when you do it. Thankfully, the great news is that addressing these issues is literally life-changing. You're gonna notice your brain fog lift, your mood and digestive symptoms improve pretty quickly. You're also gonna have more energy to do the things that you love, feel sharper mentally, and in cases of our members, get back to your ideal weight because you've solved problems, few know how to truly address, and few know how to truly target. So now that you understand the difference between food sensitivities, food intolerances, and food allergies, you understand the gut's role in depression, the accuracy of food sensitivity tests, plus a lot more we've covered in this video. As you can imagine, that's really just the start because you wanna use these lessons to start to repair your gut, your mind, and your mood ASAP, which is why I've created a free digital gut health report that will help you to identify your likelihood of obesity, fatigue, digestive distress, carb cravings, plus much more, based on our survey of over 50,000 people and 1.5 million pieces of data from around the globe that we collected in this gigantic survey. This gut health report is designed to help you close the gap from knowing to actually doing. Why? Well, I understand personally that mental health is a complex web of various different components that most people often overlook, including my own doctors in my own case, and especially food sensitivities. This free report is gonna help you to start pull the missing pieces together. Then, to help you even further, we're also gonna give you the introduction and two free chapters from my brand new book, Mind Control, How to Biohack Your Weight, Mind and Immune System, Using Nutritional Psychology and the Gut Microbiome. Mind Control is the follow-up to my bestseller, Unstoppable, the one best self-help book of 2020. It was translated into two different languages, it sold over 70,000 copies. Unstoppable has also been praised by doctors, psychologists, nutritionists, as well as athletes, which is why I'm so excited to present to you the follow-up mind control, because it's gonna help you to take back control of your mood, understand why you eat, what you eat, why we're physically full but emotionally empty, the missing micronutrients and your starving brain, the best diets for treating depression, anxiety and fatigue, and various gut health issues, plus so much more. It's so easy to get overwhelmed by dietary advice that's conflicting in nature. Mind Control's aim is to really take the pain out of this and reveal to you the most up-to-date research in these fields. So if you're interested in your free gut health report and sample chapters from Mind Control, the link is in the description below. If you like this video, go on, go ahead and click the subscribe button and hit the notification bell and tell us which of the food sensitivity symptoms do you most identify with? Leave a comment below. You're not the only one struggling with them. For now, I can't wait to see you in the next video. Take care.
ladies and gentlemen. That's all I got for today, but thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. Uh, that's my podcast, Frequency Bay, and I'm your host, Madam Butterfly. Uh, on the next, <laughs> until next time, uh, Madam Butterfly out.